Uh, well, welcome everybody to Noir at the Bar, the Valentine's Eve edition. Uh, my name is David Walters and I run the blog fanfightaddict.com. Uh, and I want to personally thank all of you for being with us here tonight. Uh, while we clearly would have loved the opportunity uh, to do this in person, virtual events have pretty much become the norm. So we're going to make the best of it or make the best of it as we can. Um, we have an amazing lineup of authors this evening who just so happen to be some of the biggest and best names in crime and thrillers today. Uh, so I hope you all enjoy the, the vast amount of readings that we're going to have this evening. Uh, Sam, I'm going to turn it over to you for a minute, and then uh, we'll get started with uh, our first author. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for showing up. Um, you'll notice uh, tonight that our lineup doesn't quite equal what our promotional materials had out. Um, earlier this morning, we got a, a group message from uh, Dr. Chester Burke that uh, Due to events that happened earlier this week, she did not uh, want to participate this evening. Um, I don't think most of the people that were reading tonight knew exactly what had happened. And uh, since we do have such a stellar lineup tonight, there was kind of a waiting list for people to, to read with us. Uh, so with the time being so short, we, re we re filled her slot pretty quick. And uh, it turns out the reason that she couldn't read with us is that she did uh, another one of these earlier in the week, I believe yesterday. And uh, they were, her and another woman of color were Zoom bombed uh, by an organized group of racist and misogynists and they attacked uh, both the readers. And it was very traumatic and I don't blame her for not wanting to read. Um, however, uh, Dr. Burke went on later on social media to say that she was uh, a little upset with us because she didn't feel uh, supported by us and actually said that that lack of support hurt more than the actual Zoom bombing. So uh, I wanted to personally apologize to her um, and to anybody that's friends with her. Uh, please reach out and let her know if there's anything we can do uh, that we would be more than willing to help her with that. And I think as a show of support, I think we should probably put up in the in the chat uh, Dr. Burke's Amazon page and encourage people to go to that and uh, support her through that. Let her know that there are far more good people out there than those assholes last night. And let's be clear, there's far too many of those assholes, but uh, um, I think it's important that we do what we can to support her. I want to personally apologize to her for, for any grief this has caused her. And uh, if you came to hear Dr. Burke read, uh, I'm sorry. And if you came here uh, to pull the same shit that those guys pulled on Dr. Burke, um, this is not the same group that was at Dr. Burke's reading. Uh, you are going to be dealing with some of the most vicious social justice warriors on the internet. We will come after you. You are on the internet. We will find you. We will dox you. We will let your employer know. And uh, if you're a racist and a misogynist, I don't want you in my country. I damn sure don't want you in my motherfucking Zoom call. So you feel free to leave, crawl back with your little parlor machine into your basement, watch your Newsmax and go back to the 17th century where you belong and kindly fuck off. Um, so, and because I'm the king of segues, uh, I was watching or listening to Conan O'Brien this week. And he said, uh, his worst gig ever was a uh, veterans gig. 
And he was very excited to do the gig because he believed in the cause. And he's backstage getting ready to do his funny man stuff and all this. And they went through the ceremony. And he's all getting on. And then they played taps. And he's like, this is the most somber, soul-sucking song in the history of the world. How does a comedian follow taps? Well, I guess we're going to find out tonight. Uh, my suggestion is, you know, we've got a bunch of kick-ass writers that are going to do a bunch of kick-ass readings. We celebrate each other. We celebrate humanity and the arts. And we do a little noirin. We do a little barin. And uh, have a good time. Thank you very much. Go Nuggets. All right. Thank you, Sam. <clears throat> so our first author we've got up is uh, S.A. Cosby. He's an Anthony Award-winning writer from Southeastern Virginia. He's the best-selling author of Blacktop Wasteland, Amazon's number one mystery and thriller of the year, and number three best book of 2020 overall, a New York Times notable book of the year, and New York Times book review editor's choice and a Goodreads Choice Award semifinalist. He is also the author of the upcoming Razorblade Tears. His short fiction has appeared in numerous anthologies and magazines, and his story Slant Six was selected as a Distinguished Story and Best American Mystery Stories for 2016. His short story, The Grass Beneath My Feet, won the Anthony Award for Best Short Story in 2019. His writing has been called gritty and heartbreaking and dark and thrilling and tragic. Mr. Cosby, you have the floor. Hey, everybody. Uh, thank you for having me. And uh, just before I get started, I want to echo Sam's words that uh, Dr. Burke is an incredible artist, an incredible writer, and an incredible person. And um, I have a saying where I grew up, I, I'm from the South, and uh, there's, a, there's a saying, you know, don't get up off the porch if you can't run with the big dogs. Anybody out there that thinks that they're going to come here and disrespect anyone uh, that's a part of this, uh, this genre, a part of this movement, a part of this uh, uh, community, you might want to think again, because I think you're writing checks with your mouth that your ass can't cover. And in that vein, because tomorrow's Valentine's Day, I have a little story, uh, a little sharp noir story about uh, true love. Um, this is called Doubt Thou the Stars of Fire. So what you want to drink, man? A rum and coke, vodka and cranberry? Them little motherfuckers down at the club be drinking that pink Ciroc, but I know they ain't you, right? Amir asked. I shook my head. You got some Jack Daniels? I'll have some of that. He turned to the kitchen. Hey, Shonda, get Chester Jack and Coke, he yelled. Just a Jack. Amir nodded. Hey, just a Jack. And I tell you what, just bring the whole fucking bottle, he yelled. Shonda didn't respond, but I was sure she heard him. A few seconds later, she came sauntering out of the kitchen and handed me a heavy cut crystal glass filled to the brim with whiskey. Two lonely ice cubes were dropped in there for decoration. Then she sat a mostly full fifth of Jack Daniels and a red solo cup on the glass coffee table between me and Amir. She didn't look at me and I didn't look at her. When she walked away, I stared at my drink like it was my ninth grade algebra homework. Amir poured himself a shot. Five years, Chess. Man, we lucked out on that shit, didn't we? Amir said. He took his cup to the head. You really lucked out. You only got a year, I said. Amir nodded slowly. He was almost able to pull off that look of solemnity he was going for. Hey, man, you didn't get the needle. Manslaughter ain't bad. And now you out. It's been, what, three weeks? It's just like you never left, he said. I killed half my drink with one gulp. 
I had to keep my mouth occupied. I wonder if he noticed how tight I was gripping the glass. The whiskey burned like the devil was pissing down my throat. And now you the man, I wheezed after the liquor hit my belly. Amir looked around his living room. He stared at the, living, the leather living room suite and the deep pile cafe latte carpet. His eyes peered through the French doors that led to his patio. I watched him take in the BMW and the Mercedes sitting in his driveway. He tried to hide it, but I saw him glance toward the kitchen, toward Shonda. Man, I'm doing all right, he said finally. I took another sip of my drink. Sabuni said you wanted to talk to me. Amir sat forward and I leaned back. Force of habit. If someone leans into you while you're on the inside, they either want to shank you or fuck you. Either way, they're looking to put something hard inside you. Hey, man, I just wanted to clear up the air about the way things went down, he said. I took another sip. Nothing to clear up. Your lawyer was better than mine, that's all. I lied. Amir tossed his head back and his long dread spilled across the back of the couch. Man, why did that motherfucker have to fight back? We'd done that Craigslist escort thing a hundred times and nobody even blinked. Then that big son of a bitch wants to try and crack our, crack our skulls open. At the trial, they said he was on meth and coke. I said, yo man, that motherfucker broke my jaw in three places. He was on some incredible hawk type shit, Amir said. I didn't respond. I had played the night over my head enough when I was inside. It had been on a continuous loop the entire time I'd been in Mecklenburg State Prison. Me and Amir bursting out of the hotel room closet like thug life personified. The big naked white guy punching Sean in the mouth. Amir getting tossed against the wall like a bag of trash. Me hitting the big guy on the back of the head with the lamp. The withering silence that fell over the room as we, as we realized the guy was dead. In scene. It was some crazy shit, I said. Look, man, I appreciate you not snitching, Amir said. I took another big gulp of my drink. The empty glass mocked me. Better bite your tongue off next time he says something like that. I'm all out of ideas, I imagine the glass saying. I rinsed the jack around in my mouth. I didn't snitch because in the week between beating that guy to death in the relax in and the cops nabbing us, I thought we'd come up with a pretty good plan. We just tell the cops that we were partying with the guy and a fight broke out and things got out of hand. If we all stuck to the story, we probably would have gotten off with depraved indifference. But we hadn't all stuck to the story, had we? I finally swallowed the whiskey. My mouth was numb. The flesh on the inside of my cheeks felt loose and gelatinous. Gelatinous. It's strange the words you pick up when you've got nothing but time to read. You take time to read a dictionary from cover to cover while you're inside. Well, you know, we were boys, I said. I tried to keep my tone nice and even. The few people who came to see me filled me in on Amir's rise to the middle of the Richmond drug game. After he did his year, he'd gotten back up with Shonda. Her lawyer had kept her out of jail entirely. And she was right by his side as he transitioned from being a stick-up kid to selling special K to the club kids, 
parlay that into dealing designer drugs to the hipster douchebags at the three local colleges. He built his shit solid enough to make some paper, but fluid enough to escape the attention of Johnny Law. Hey, Chess, you know, um, you know me and Shonda, that, that didn't start till I got out. We was never doing nothing behind your back, I swear. It just happened, he said. I looked at him. Hey, Amir, do me a favor. Don't tell me that shit, okay? Nothing just happens. You didn't just look up one day and notice her fat ass, all right? Don't play me like that, man. Y'all together now and that's it. I get it. But don't tell me it just happened, I said. Shonda came out of the kitchen and went through the French doors. She had put on a leather jacket to go out into the cold February air. I watched her put a cigarette to her lips. The flame from the lighter gave her butter pecan complexion an incandescent glow. She cut her hair short. When I'd gone in, it had hung down to her ass, cascading down her back like a waterfall made of shadows. That was the Shonda I knew. That was the Shonda I loved. That was the Shonda who wrote me twice a month for five years. The Shonda who dangled a carrot in front of me that kept me going inside Mecklenburg. Maybe when you get out. She ended all her letters like that, all 120 of them. I got a job for you, man, Amir said. The jocularity in his voice had dried up like ditch water in the middle of July. What kind of job? Amir stood up and went into his den. I heard him rifle through a drawer and then shut it hard. When he came back out, he had one of those big brown manila envelopes in his hand, the kind you mail documents in. I got some fellows coming out of D.C. coming into town tonight. They're bringing me a package. Some of that good shit that them Beckys over at VCU like. I can't go get it tonight, so I was going to go get you to pick it for me. Pick it up for me, he said. Amir tossed the envelope on the coffee table. I stared at it. Then I glanced out the patio window. Shauna was just finishing her smoke. The last letter I had received from her had been written in code. Nonsensical words and phrases that only held meaning for us. You know, the, ways, the way lovers speak. She told me a mere beat on her, that he treated her like property, that she'd taken out a $500,000 insurance policy on him, that maybe when I got out, we could be together if he was out of the picture. I stood up. I took the envelope off the table. Well, I guess I'm working for you now, huh? I said. Amir frowned. Man, don't say it like that. I owe you, Chess. You do this for me and I'll take care of you. It's the least I can do. You just pick up the package and bring it over here tomorrow night, he said. Tomorrow? A sheepish smile crawled across his face. Yeah, man, we going out tonight, he said. And then it dawned on me what today was. I didn't keep track of holidays when I was inside. Not Christmas, not Thanksgiving, least of all Valentine's Day. Images flooded my mind that made me sick to my stomach. Amir and Shonda at some fancy restaurant ordering what he thought was a good bottle of wine. Amir and Shonda riding the elevator to the top floor of the Marriott to fuck in the same two positions they did at home every three weeks. Amir laying on
floor to my left. Amir grabbed it and pumped it up and down twice. His grip was almost comically delicate. He'd gone soft. I dropped the envelope and sucker punched him. I planted my feet and threw my hips into it. I felt a shock from his way up my arm as my fist connected with his cheekbone. He dropped to one knee. He was blinking hard and a thin stream of blood and drool was pouring out of his mouth. I grabbed him by his dreads and dragged him to his feet. Five years, motherfucker. Five years. How many times you fuck her in them five years? A hundred? A thousand? After you sold me out? I drove his head in the glass coffee table. It cracked, but it wouldn't break. A series of fractures raced across his edge. I slammed his head in the table again, and this time it did shatter. Glass shards ran down on his lush pile carpet. I let go of him, he crumpled to the floor. I grabbed the Jack Daniels bottle from the wreckage of the coffee table, gripped it by the neck and raised it above my head. We were boys, I howled, and I slammed the bottle in the back of his skull. We were supposed to be ride or die. Thwack. She was my girl, I said. Thwack, thwack, thwack. When I finally dropped the bottle, it was covered in blood and Amir didn't have a face anymore. Shauna came in from the patio and closed the door behind her. You were supposed to wait until tonight. Come back and break in. That's why I talked him into getting you to do the pickup so you could get the lay of the house, she said. Her honey-coated voice melted over me. Even now, with blood splattered across my face, it made me shiver from the inside out. I couldn't, I couldn't let him touch you. I couldn't let him touch you one more night. Not one more fucking night. It's okay, we can make this work. Go, go get a blanket. We take him out through the patio, drop him off down near the train tracks, I said. Shauna didn't speak. She headed down the hallway and I wiped my face. My hand came away red. I heard Shauna come back into the living room, but she wasn't carrying a blanket. She had a small nickel-plated 32. For the briefest of moments, I told myself that I didn't understand. Shauna, what are you doing? I said, even though I knew exactly what the fuck she was doing. You're right. I can still make it work, she said. The first shot got me in the shoulder. The hole it made in the sleeve of my t-shirt was the size of an aspirin. I stared at it, waiting for the blood to flow. I turned back to Shonda and we locked eyes. I started for her then, and then she shot me again. My legs disappeared from under me. I fell forward into the remains of the coffee table. It didn't hurt, not really. Nothing hurt except that millisecond between seeing the gun in her hand and her pulling the trigger. I could hear her talking on the cell phone to a 911 operator. She was explaining how her ex had broken in and beaten her husband to death. And she, the poor frightened waif that she was, had been forced to shoot her ex. As the darkness began to overtake me, I wondered how she explained the letters in my back pocket. All 120 of them. I'd carry them with me everywhere since I'd gotten out. Some of them even had little hearts drawn in the margins. Ain't love grand. That's it. Thank you.
Thank you so much, S.A. <clears throat> um, I uh, don't envy anybody that's going to follow that, which is everybody. So <laughs> everybody's been saying it in the comments. So, well, thank well, you guys for having me. Absolutely. Um, thank oh, well, so thank you guys for having me, and I, I appreciate it. For sure. For All sure. right. Thanks again. <clears throat> All right. So next up, we've got Sam W. Anderson. Uh, he lives in Denver, Colorado with his family and two mutts. He's the author of over 40 published novels novellas and short stories and is the winner of the fictional mom likes me best award his new novella the sentimental assassin from rothko press and another novella vonda will be available later this year and he also likes pie so uh without further ado sam gee thanks <laughs> um yeah my uh, novel the uh, sentimental assassin just came out so soon that I haven't even got my copies yet. Um, so uh, this is set in my money run world, um, which is like this big, vast black market uh, that's right underneath our noses. And we kind of just turn our uh, heads the other way because we all benefit from it. And who cares? Those people are those people. Um, so yeah, no pressure. Thanks, Sean. Uh, <clears throat> February 2013, in the middle of fucking nowhere. Let there be no question, Joe Martindale was not trans. She held no interest in being nor becoming male and only wore men's clothes because her wife, while she'd been alive, had claimed vanilla ice would make one fine looking lesbian. Abigail said it often in death too. 90s vanilla ice, she'd tell Joe in the dream was brought on by the various anesthesias administered over the years. Before the facial hair, I don't dig girls with facial hair. This despite the few gray strands that hung from Abigail's own chin. I got standard, she'd say, from a million miles away. This mission, though, the story of this story, would bring Joe closer to her beloved abs in some manner. Either she'd use the bounty Deacon Rice had offered to finance another plastic surgery, one to square off her own hairless chin and improve upon her vanilla iciness, or she'd meet her soulmate on the other side. Either way, she'd be cool. Either fucking way. The blood red Plymouth Duster, three on the tree and factory eight track intact, kept at a steady 50 over the snow crunched one lane road. UFOs lights out, scream full blast on a continuous loop. Had been since Joe brought the muscle car from Deacon Rice some two years earlier with the volume dial already missing in action. Joe never heard a single note though, felt them, all their benevolent, loving bass beats that vibrated through the driver's seat, cracked vinyl, and jetted up and down her spine, kept her moist, reminded her of more musical times. Over the month, she'd grown so accustomed to the constant thumping, Joe didn't know if she could operate the duster without too hot to handle pulsing through her thighs. Outside, moonbeams and headlights met the snow blanketing the vast oil fields, creating an eerie grayish hue. The mechanical donkey pumpers looked like enormous prehistoric birds, somehow motorized as they bobbed and sucked up the black goo from the long gone ancestors riding several strata beneath the Dakota Plains. Joe removed the night vision specks dangling from the gear shift and cut the headlights before adjusting the goggles into place. Although she'd been assured surprise sided with her, Joe wanted to maintain, maintain that advantage, any advantage, especially considering her target and Joe didn't much care to consider her target. On the horizon, the shed appeared. Smoke whisked from the cylindrical metal chimney 
and the light from the sole window appeared like a firefly frozen in place over the snow-covered horizon. Joe's stomach tightened and tumbled. She wished she could fast forward through the next following few hours as no possible outcome appeared palatable. She understood part of her soul would die in that damn shed. Scenarios played in her mind, horrific possibilities with once loved one dead and body parts missing. She gnashed and ground and gritted her teeth. She never saw the road spikes, never heard, of course, the Goodyear's blow. The duster fishtailed into the flat and the flat front tires found the small snake-like ravine bordering the road. Joe's seatbelt locked. The first roll popped the perpetually stuck UFO eight-track tape free. The second broke off the passenger door. The second broke off the passenger door. The several that followed the duster's contents. Sorry. The several that followed tossed the duster's contents, a practical trash bin of fast food wrappers and spent steroid syringes mingled with a shit ton of extra ammo with tornadic force. By the time the car had come to a rest on its top, the music had stopped vibrating through Joe. Instead, she endured the assorted contusions from the seatbelt constraints. The agony from her elbow had cracked against the door and the concussion, mild as it was, still a beautiful fresh brain bruise piled atop the vast past collection so vast she'd going to enjoy the experience. The belt pinned and hung her upside down in the seat, blood rushing to her woozy head. She began a quick inventory of her weapons, but couldn't get past the idea that maybe she'd punctured one of her propane tanks in her breastplate. She spelled no hint nor tint of the fetid fuel though in the frigid harsh air. The crash had played out in the silence and blind scene for her but the crunching metal had surely alerted somebody holed up inside the shed. Joe readjusted her goggles and depressed the seatbelt latch. The constraint gave no quarter. Tugging and twisting yielded no results either. She dangled suspended like a helpless fly trapped awaiting a famished spider. Well, as helpless of a fly as a world-class take no sass, kick you and your mama's ass, sass could possibly be. The light inside the shed went dark. Joe needed to cut herself free, pronto and reached for the knife in her boot, only to find the sheath empty. Her heart thundered beneath the propane tits. A conglomeration of extra ammo clips and smaller caliber guns lay scattered across the crumpled car ceiling, and Joe probed through the mess, searching for her missing knife. I can't do this, she thought. Even if she could, she couldn't. Through the concussion fog, a notion nagged at her about how she should have easily freed herself. She somehow knew the answer was so obvious, it taunted her just behind conscious thought. She couldn't find it though. And the harder she searched for the fleeting idea, the further away it scurried. In the snow, Joe's target crept closer. That's my time. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sam. Really appreciate it. <clears throat> All right, up next, we've got Hillary Lefwich. She is the author of Ghosts Are Just Strangers Who Know How to Knock from CCM Press and the Accomplices 2019. Her hybrid memoir, Aura, is forthcoming from Future Tense Books in 2022. She runs Alchemy Author Services and Workshop and teaches creative writing at Lighthouse Writers. Some of her work can be found in The Rumpus, Entropy, Denver Quarterly, and Hobart. And her website is hillaryleftwich.com. So let me get you up on the board. You can go ahead and go. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank you. Thank all the organizers and host for inviting me um, to read tonight. I really appreciate it. Very excited to be here. 
Um, I also have to give a warning. Um, what I'm reading uh, has violence against women, um, sexual assault and um, suicide. So I just wanna give a warning to everyone listening. If they need to step away, please take care of yourselves. Um, this piece I'm reading is a true story from my days uh, working as a private investigator. I stare at a photo of victim number one splayed out on a slanted metal table while victim number two is displayed on a tiny tray next to victim number one. The fetus has a curled tail, making it appear part seahorse, part zygote. The father of the baby isn't listed on the police report. The dead like to keep their secrets safe. The blood from the autopsy condensing on the table looks like strawberry jelly, the kind you might spread on a hot biscuit. Her lips are split where the knife cut a zigzag pattern into her flesh, her stomach, her neck. Her hands are sliced from every angle. Defensive wounds, my boss tells me. He bites into a pink and orange frosted donut while we examine the crime scene photos spread across his desk. It's one of the first cases I'm assigned to as a private investigator that doesn't involve criminal mischief, assault and battery, stalking or marijuana. It's my first murder case and sure, all murder cases are bad, but this one went beyond bad. I peer down at a picture of her face Tangled dark hair sticks against maroon stained skin. The coroner's report states sexual assault prior to her body being dismembered by a chainsaw. See page three, evidence number 10. And the body parts transferred into a green plastic storage container. See page five, evidence number 12. My boss cracks a joke and I leave the room the taste of acidic cold coffee bubbling up my throat. He later tells me in the break room, I better start learning how to find a way to numb myself to the horrors of this job or I won't last. You'll lose your mind. His eyes lock on me. He shoves half a tuna melt on rye into his mouth, chewing loudly. A scene from the movie Benny and June surfaces to my mind the part where June is having a mental breakdown on a bus in the middle of rush hour traffic. She's pacing up and down the aisle, hands chopping the air, screaming. Later, I stifle my sobs in the bathroom stall, but they break free, crashing, big as waves against the cold tile. A woman in the stall next to me asks if I need a tampon, if I'm okay, and I tell her no, and no, at night, I scroll through the victim's Facebook profile. Rose, making poetry in motion, the caption under her photo states, she's young, less than 20, older than 16, and somewhere in between, she met a man who wanted her for himself and no one else. I've had my share of stalking cases since I took the job, but never a murder. The small office in Aurora where I work has a strong connection with many of the top criminal defense attorneys in Colorado. The owner, Ted, is an ex-Texas prison warden alongside a previous Colorado State Patrol trooper, trooper, Richard, as his sidekick. Together, they took me on, shoving out the previous woman in my new position who secretly was taking other cases on the side. I wasn't that bold and they knew it. 
During my interview, Richard told me he could tell if I was lying just by my body language. I sat tense on a leather sofa that was too soft in the middle, feeling myself sinking in and repeatedly having to adjust myself. They offered me the job the next day. Folks in the business will tell you there's always a case that breaks you and they're right. I worked dozens of cases previously, learning the ins and outs as I continued to be tested, Richard acting as my mentor while Ted did more meetings and courtroom work. Between me and Richard, we soon became a pretty solid team as Ted commented one morning. He decided to treat us to a Keurig coffee maker and a water cooler to make the appearance of our tiny 70s office more legit. Up until this point, I'd made plenty of mistakes, big ones, and was in constant fear of losing my job after seeing how quickly they let the woman before me go. Once, Ted threw a CD with a client interview on it and told me to trash it, it's a done deal. I hesitated. If anything, Richard had taught me nothing was ever a done deal, but I threw it away anyway, feeling the need to unclutter my desk from too many pieces of paper and sticky notes. The next day, Ted flew out of his office demanding the CD back, but the trial took a turn and he needed the interview, realizing there was an important piece of information overlooked. I froze in my seat, knowing the trash had already been emptied and taken away, considering jumping into the dumpster and clawing open all the garbage bags inside until I found it, as long as Ted would stop murder staring at me. But it was too late. With a slam of his office door, my time was up. Richard approached my desk, a giant smirk on his clean-shaven face. Learn your lesson? My face was numb, my body a balloon floating far away. He patted me on my shoulder, laughing, always laughing. It's okay, he'll figure it out. He doesn't need that interview, he can work around it. He's just a lazy piece of shit. My hands trembling, I forced a smile back feeling the fragile thin line between panic and relief slowly starting to fade. Most of the people we help investigate for their attorneys are arrested on bullshit added on charges to make their case harder to dismiss, or they really weren't innocent. The racially profiled woman charged with bank robbery facing a lifetime in federal prison, her boyfriend always locked up, already locked up in connection with the crime. Over 48 hours of listening to police radio communications proved an incorrect license plate transposed by one digit and I caught it. I remember sitting her down and the three of us, me, Richard and Ted, told her the charges had been dropped, she was cleared. Moments like these were worth the other terrifying realities to the job, the things I couldn't unsee. I keep telling myself it's worth it. But the client who nearly beat to death an old man known as Santa Claus in a shower stall at the local YMCA couldn't be researched into innocence, no matter how many times I read through the police reports. The former Marine who stalked his ex-girlfriend and threatened to kill her via the Jimi Hendrix song, Hey Joe, then turned his rage on me, saying he could stalk me at the office, follow me home, do the same to me. The eight-year-old boy who hung himself in his closet, his parents arrested for growing marijuana plants over the legal limit, their son growing cold at the county coroner, unable to arrange a funeral for him. Interviewing male inmates at the Arapahoe County Detention Center alone, because if anything, Ted and Richard ensured I was treated as equal and fair as a man would be in my position. 
but they didn't recognize or didn't want to recognize the fact that I am a woman in a detention center filled with men. There is no fairness in what a male inmate can do while sitting across from me in a small room as I interview him alone with only a panic button behind me and a camera overhead to save me. My body covered in neutral clothing to lessen the temptation, as I am told by Ted, of arousing any thoughts in our male inmate clients. But I also know the boy I interviewed, barely 18, arrested for assault and battery and attempted murder, could crack my neck in less than five seconds. Then there was Richard, my mentor, who I later found out was fired from his job as a state patrol officer after he had been caught pulling women over and blackmailing them, promising if they agreed to meet with him at a motel room, he would dismiss their charges. The officers who arrested him found a collection of BDSM sex toys in the trunk of his patrol car, and it was all over. Working for Ted was his last hope, a life-saving opportunity. After his wife divorced him, he moved in with his mother and thought about putting a bullet in his brain. I think about how whenever I accomplish something worthy of praise, Richard always calls me good girl. Good girl, he says, careful not to touch me. But the implication was there. It's always there, resting, waiting to be placed gently in my lap, a compliment I should take and tuck away with all the other words of well-meaning that don't offer anything but discomfort. Rose's killer, a previous boyfriend, is arrested along with his mother who helped her son dismember Rose's body and stuff her inside a storage container. He told detectives Rose had broken up with him after a month of dating, that she wanted nothing more to do with him. When she begged for her life and her unborn child's life, he couldn't contain his rage at the thought of her with another man's baby inside of her, that another man had touched her. I watched the interrogation tapes over and over, watching Rose's murderer as he leans back, arms crossed, a look of satisfaction on his face. But he isn't our client, his mother is. And as I watch her being questioned by detectives, I see a woman willing to do anything for her son including making herself an accessory to murder, including giving up her life for a man who would murder a woman out of jealousy and rage. Rose rests in my mind as if she found her own space to occupy, tossing my other memories aside. She remains a dying root, refusing to be unearthed. Don't let it bring you down, John sing songs to me, forcing a fake smile while he saunters past my desk. It's only castles burning. I ask myself every day, how long will I last? How long until something snaps, sending me over the edge? At night, I dream of curling my body around Rose. I hold fast to her, both of us resisting the pull of the current. Meeting someone new, Rose's last Facebook post stated, her face glowing and hopeful. I work on her murderer's case nonstop for weeks, scanning text threads, Facebook posts, interviews, the 911 call, cell phone tower pings. The final ping on Rose's cell phone near where she was last seen on her way to meet the someone new. She never made it. There was no way to call for help, no panic button for her to push. One minute she was walking down the street, 
and the next minute she had vanished. That's what happens to women, we vanish. There's another scene in Benny and June, one where June goes mad and completely gives into her own mind. She refuses to see anyone and shuts the entire world out. Richard and Ted decide to give me a break from the case after I start making simple mistakes, after they tell me I'm focusing more on Rose and our client. I can't unravel myself from the feeling of being an accessory to helping a murderer's mother get a lesser sentence or entirely dismissed. I call in sick one day and the next, the next. I can't stop thinking about the autopsy photos, the last post on her Facebook, her face warm and expecting, looking something like hope. In my dreams, Rose and her baby are alive. The moon swings back and forth, a pendulum on a rope, hypnotizing us. She whispers words to me while the sun rises and sets outside. Years pass. When I look at her, her eyes are two burned out coals. I wake up screaming, knowing there is no going back, that it's always more than the one case that breaks you. It's the people who break you and the people who broke them. There is no justice, there can't be. The scales will always tip to one side or the other. They will never balance. And Rose, making poetry in motion, I can hear her singing, don't let it bring you down. It's only castles burning. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Hillary. Uh, <laughs> chills. <laughs> I think I saw that comment a couple of times come in. Uh, that was phenomenal. Thank you so much for being here and thank you for reading. Really appreciate it. Um, so next up, we've got uh, our, I guess, mainly our main host, <laughs> Hank Early. Uh, Hank's the author of the Earl Marcus series. His first novel, Heaven's Crooked Finger, was both a next generation indie winner and a forward silver medalist. He also writes horror as John Mantooth, and he lives in central Alabama with his wife and two children. So uh, Hank, if you wanna go ahead and take the floor. All right, um, thanks, David. I'm gonna read actually from a work in progress. Uh, it's called Elijah in the Dreamwalker, and I'll just jump right into it. This is how it opens. I come to Highway 278 in the dark teeth of the night and nearly empty black backpack slung across my shoulders, the preacher we call Naismith on my heels. He means to kill me or something worse because just moments earlier, I witnessed him consorting with an evil entity that I believe to be the devil himself. Or maybe it's Naismith who's the devil. And that black horn thing I saw waiting for his offering in the shadows of the barn was something else, something more or less, but not quite a devil, a devil maker. He's been living with us since he and mama decided to get married. And I didn't need to see him in the barn with that thing to know he wasn't what he pretended to be. But now he knows I know. Now everything has changed. 278 is darker than the spaces between the stars, darker than emptiness. I feel the pain and dread of that nothing as I stand beside the silent road. The trees are empty too. Their leaves rattled away by scouring winds, leaving their branches cold and bare. Goddamn sky looks bare too, like some planet-eating monster scraped a great claw across it took out the stars and the treetops, knocked the moon asunder, spun the world crooked, left me down here trying to find my balance. Left me bare too, left the wind inside me with nothing to touch. On the outside, I'm just cold, tears make it worse. There ain't a word for how they feel drying on my face as I run. 
A fire's burning out in the field about a mile away. I see the smoke curling out of the leafless trees, a thin omen, but one I can't ignore. I've long suspected Naismith wasn't what the folks in this town believed him to be. And now that I have proof, I wish like hell I'd been wrong. Proof makes the world look different. The road, the trees, the smoke, and its signature in the sky, all of it takes on a stark ghost-like quality, like an illusion, but the kind that is real enough to hurt. Forrest, Naismith said, drawling my name like he always does, so that it sounds lascivious. You didn't see what you thought you saw, darling. He didn't even seem concerned. I mean, surprised, sure. But a man like Naismith doesn't really know concern. He just suspects that his words will straighten out whatever seam he's encountered, that his tongue will untie knots that tangle up other folks for lifetimes. I reckon the fire in the field is someone else's problem. Got plenty of my own. Once I would have believed it was my duty to do something about that fire, to call somebody, to help in some goddamn way. No more. Now I'll just offer a prayer, because believing in prayer ain't a choice I have. Without that hope, I might as well just let Naismith catch me, do, what, do with me what he wants. A car is coming. It's flying like everybody flies on 278, especially late like, like this when there's nobody around to see anything. I turn, hold my thumb up, and bite my lip until I taste blood. Please stop. Fifteen years and I ain't asked too much. Just give me this, and Lord, let it be a woman. Headlights cut into my skull, burn something in the back of my brain. I shut my eyes, keep my thumb out, keep praying. I need this. God, I need this. God, God, I need this. The words tumble over my bloody lip. The car doesn't even slow, blows past me, maybe going 90. I nearly lose my balance from the blast of hot air. It's okay, there'll be more. I get a head start. I got a head start, a good one. Naismith is old and carries a cane, and I managed to smash out the headlights of his and mama's cars before heading out across the fields toward the highway. After seeing what I saw in the barn, I'd sprinted to the house, hoping to grab mama's keys. I meant to take her car straight down to 278 across the interstate and the county line. I wouldn't stop until I made it to Granny's farm. It's weird how I thought of Granny as soon as I saw the evil Naismith was up to. I reckon I've been thinking of going there for a while anyway, but seeing what I saw put the need in me strong. Granny's a special person, not special in the way people usually mean special, which is to say a good person that cares about others. She's that sure, but she's special in the true sense of the word too, as in there ain't others like her. Granny's got guts and isn't afraid of anything. She's also got what she calls sacred magic, which she'll be quick to tell you is all about seeing the world, the world truth, seeing it for what it is. Once you can do that, she tells me, ain't nothing you can't handle. Anyway, I made it to the kitchen determined to get those keys. But as soon as I opened the back door, I heard the bitch, not mama. No, Naismith's sister, Ruby Jewel. She was already in the kitchen, holding the keys to the Ford in one of those big twisted hands of hers. She's standing there shaking them, letting them rattle gently like wind chimes. A smile on her face of such contentment, I want to slap it right off, but I don't dare. Ruby Jewel is probably the only person that scares me more than Naismith. She's blind, but sometimes it feels like she's not. She always knows right where a thing is, like the keys. Not only that, she always knows where a person is going to be and what they aim to do. But the worst thing to me is the way she looks. She's tall, taller than Naismith or Mama or just about anybody else I know. She's broad too, big as a man. Arms long and formless, but thick. Hips and legs the same, flat, solid wood. Tits like empty bags. Her face is the worst part. She's got like this hawk face, sharp lines and cruel angles. She wears heavy and dark makeup that almost looks like an earnest effort to be pretty. But once that is missed, but one that has missed the mark and left her a parody, a cartoon woman. 
like something come to life out of a fairy tale. And she's been living with us, sleeping in my brother's old, old bedroom. When folks let their guard down, which is rare around here, they'll comment on the unnatural relationship between Ruby Jewel and her brother. She's like his bodyguard or something. Weird as it is for grown siblings to have to live together, I couldn't get mama to see it. He's taking care of her for us. That's what, good, that's what a good man does. Seems like the other way around to me. Folks say that when they were in elementary school, Ruby Jewel failed a grade on purpose just to be in the same classes with her brother. I didn't speak a word to her, just went straight to the baseball bat mama keeps by the back door and headed out to the gravel drive and started smashing the headlights on Naismith's and mama's cars. I was slamming the bat against the last one on Naismith's Cadillac when I heard the barn door shut and saw the shadow of the blackhorn thing and wondered again what it was and what power it had gifted to Naismith. Thinking I still had time with Naismith being as slow as he is, I was about to try to smash the windshield too when I heard a presence behind me, when I felt a presence behind me. A hand fell on my shoulder and something dark and wild ran through me. Stumbling away, nearly falling onto the gravel drive, I spun and saw Ruby Jewel looming over me. I threw the bat at her. I didn't really expect to hit her, but I must have because I heard her gasp. But then my feet were crunching gravel and I was staring at the big field. I didn't stop until I saw 278. Now I need to ride in the worst way and I need it fast because Naismith will get a car or fix the headlights no problem. And I've got 45 miles to go before Granny's. The taillights on the car that blew past me came on. Come on. He's got to be a mile up the road by now, but he's slowing down. The car makes a U-turn. It's coming back. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you. It's a pickup truck. No surprise. A double cab. And it eases up to me. Window goes down and I hear a voice. I almost didn't see you. I don't move. That voice. It's like every other male voice. And that's the problem. Most of the men I've ever known can't be trusted. Hell, I can only think of one man I've ever trusted, and that's my brother Ben, who's dead now. Ben was a rare breed. Like Granny, he was special, though he never could see the world straight. Wasn't his fault, though. You, you grow up with the world leaning one way, you tend to think that's the way it's supposed to be. Why wouldn't a person think that? You want to ride or what, the man says. And that's where I'm going to stop. Thank you, guys. Awesome. Thank you so much, Hank. Really appreciate it. So uh, up next, we've got John Langan. Uh, John is the author of two novels and four collections of stories. For his work, he has received the Bram Stoker and the This Is Horror Award. He is one of the founders of the Shirley Jackson Awards, for which he serves on the board of directors. He lives in New York's mid-Houston Valley with his wife and younger son, is at the mercy of a book addiction he can no longer control. Uh, so John, whenever you're ready, you can go ahead and start. Thanks very much, uh, and uh, yeah, thanks to thanks to everybody who's here in the audience that we can't see for coming out. Uh, thanks to all these terrific writers for letting me be part of this evening with them, uh, and to Paul Trembling. Um, so, uh, so this is a story called "Enough for Hunger, uh, Enough for Hate," uh, which is going to be um, appearing in, in John Taft's Dark Star Dark Stars anthology in uh, in the fall. I'm just going to read the first couple of pages because it's like a million pages long. Um, so, when she had completed her counterclockwise circuit of the lake, Michelle Word turned toward the center of the frozen expanse and began to walk in the direction of the figure seated on the bright yellow bucket in front of the hole in the ice. Walter Iverson. 
the name she had said so often these past weeks, its meaning had ebbed and flowed, sometimes reducing to a series of syllables, consonants and vowels yielding sounds of no more significance than the cough of a deer, the scream of a fox, other times expanding to contain all the pain for which this man had been responsible. He was doing his best to ignore the tall woman in the dark green padded coat and jeans drawing steadily closer to him on her hiking boots. Or it was more a case of he was pretending to concentrate on the short fishing pole whose line he was tugging up and down while secretly taking in everything about her from the black hair held back by the green scarf wound about her head to the fawn gloves on her hands. She doubted he could pick out the knife clipped to her belt although his blue eyes returned to her right hip several times. In turn, as she advanced across the scrim of snow covering the ice which crunched under her boots tread, she studied him, the heavy tan coveralls over the thick black sweatshirt, itself over two or three additional pullover shirts, the red and black checked hunting cap, the black knit mittens, the single incongruous detail in the man's outfit, as if he were attempting to portray himself as possessed of a boyish streak, playful even, and not a monster, what he was, as if he could hide his nature, when it was there for everyone to see in his pale skin drawn taut to the lines of his skull, the nose hatchet sharp, the eyes of blue so light it was barely a color at all. His scraggly beard and mustache were a blonde nearing white, not from age, he was 33, though perhaps from stress. The eyes, Michelle judged, were the principal giveaway, their washed-out regard, a mix of simmering hostility and appetite restrained, if just. But it was there in the man's body language, in the way he held himself ready to leap up from his bucket into violence immediate and terrible. She could not see any sort of weapon near him. She supposed the auger lying on the other side of him would do in a pinch, but everything about Walter Iverson said he would have no need of an axe should the occasion arise, an occurrence he would greet smiling as a great opportunity. Ten feet away from him, close enough to counter the wind which sometimes raised its voice over the ice, yet far enough to allow a reasonable chance of reaching the knife should Iverson move, she stopped. He went on playing and not registering her. She wondered if he noticed her similarity to Toby. If so, he did not appear overly concerned by it. Not for the first time, she wished she were sighting him through the scope of the Winchester with which her father had taught her to hunt and which he had passed on to her now that the Parkinson's had stripped the activity from him. Lining up the sights on Iverson's chest from a blind 200 yards distant would have felt far more secure than this, watching the man's breath steam from his mouth as he continued jigging the rod up and down. She had no need to stare into his eyes as she killed him, to deliver a pithy statement for him to take to hell with him. To squeeze the trigger, watch him jerk as a bullet struck him, maybe fall down dead, maybe struggle to keep himself upright, in which case a second shot would bring to a conclusion the job started by the first would be fine. Except, according to Dr. Smith, the gunshots would not be sufficient. Oh, they'll make a mess of them, to be sure, she said on the phone, but not enough to kill him. Hell, you could stroll up beside him, shoot him point blank in the face, and it still wouldn't suffice. Having watched a 185-pound buck drop where he stood when she shot it, Michelle found this hard to accept. Yet everything she had learned in the past two weeks had, had encouraged her to adopt a more flexible perspective. Thus, she was here 
at the approximate center of this frozen lake near the summit of a mountain deep in the northern Catskills, the peak rising around half the lake and steep rocky slopes to which spruce stunted by the altitude clung in seeming defiance of gravity, while the remainder of the lake was shored by fields in which stands of spruce, oak, and birch lifted from the snow across whose brittle expanse she had hiked something on the order of a mile from the pull-off where she had parked her Subaru beside the battered Dodge Ram with the unpainted driver's door. The air was February chilled, the sky a blue equally cold. There was no need for much conversation, any really. All she had to do was drop the stones in her jacket pocket on the ice, turn around and make the trek back to her car. Soon enough thereafter, Iverson would discover what had been done to him. I'm gonna stop there, thank you. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate you being here and appreciate the read. And I guess uh, thank, thanks to Paul for also getting you here. <laughs> no, I was just being I was just being mean to Paul. It was actually <laughs> it was actually Sam who invited me, but I, I never miss a chance to be mean to Paul Tremblay if I can. <laughs> I'm sure he appreciates it. <laughs> he, he totally does. He totally does. Awesome. Well, speak, speaking of Paul, uh, he's up next. So Paul Tremblay has won the Bram Stoker British Fantasy and Massachusetts Book Awards is the author of Survivor Song, Growing Things, The Cabin at the End of the World, Disappearance of Devil's Rock, A Head Full of Ghosts, and the crime novels, The Little Sleep and No Sleep to Wonderland. His essays and short fiction have appeared in the Los Angeles Times, Entertainment Weekly Online, and numerous Year's Best anthologies. He has a master's degree in mathematics and lives outside Boston with his family. All right, Paul, if you're ready, you can go ahead and go. You can hear me? Yeah. Oh, I can't hear you. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, that's probably better. I, I don't hear the cheer. I'm sorry about that, everyone. Jesus. Um, yeah, I'm the, I'm the <laughs> uh, comedy relief. I was going to really briefly do a plug, though, for Cheshire's uh, excellent collection. If you don't have a copy, you should. You should. It, it, it's amazing. Okay. So <laughs> with all of that, uh, I'm going to read from uh, a novel in progress that uh, is due to my publisher in May. We'll see if I make it. Um, I'm reading right from the beginning. Uh, if it sounds a little silly in the beginning, it's sort of supposed to be, but uh, it's called uh, The Paul Bearers Club. Chap the first chapter is called, If I Told You, 2007. I am not Art Barbara. That is not my birth name, but at the risk of contradicting myself within the first few lines of a memoir, I am Art Barbara. Imagine my personage, the whole of me, I prefer that phrase to spirit or soul, exists in the Plato world of forms. That me, the one slicked in the amber of Greek philosophy, is Art Barbara. Sorry, mom and dad, the name you assigned was a valiant effort, but it does not sum up who I was, who I am, or who I will become. Art Barbara is bold, declarative, striking, and upon first hearing it spoken, your brow furrows, head tilts, and mouth smirks. Admit it, your face is enthralled and acting on its own. You might know a Barbara, or even an Art, but you haven't met, nor do you know Art Barbara. However, the initial O upon the shores of uh, appellatory discovery soon gives way to incredulousness. So there must be some mistake. Let's be honest here, and you have my promise that I will always be painfully honest. The name tries too hard. It's more than a little ridiculous, shading towards pathetic, a word derived from the Greek, uh, Greek pathos, of course, particularly when spoken with a Boston or Rhode Island accent as the coterie of ours disappear 
into obnoxiously long ahs, ah, Barbara. Even without the accent, there is a slant rhyme, slant rhyme clunkiness to the first two syllables, or three if you insist upon pronouncing Barbara as Barbara, as opposed to the shortened Barbara. Regardless, the combination of the first two syllables, the art bar, forces the speaker to comply, to slow down and enunciate the harsh coupling before dumping an auditory body into the dark water of R's and A's. I make no claim to be an expert of phonesthetics, the study of inherent pleasantness of the sound of words according to Wikipedia, but clearly Art Barbara is no cellar door. I saw the name written on the bathroom wall of Club Babyhead, spring 1991. The letters were capitalized, angular slashes of neon green ink, a primitive cave painting glowing in the lovely darkness of the early 1990s. I have never forgotten it. And by the end of this memoir, neither will you. Isn't time strange? Time is not linear, but a deck of cards that is continuously shuffled. I will change all the names to protect the innocent and not so. I will take great care to choose the names appropriately. As astounding and beyond belief the goings on to be detailed are, uh, going on to be detailed are, ooh, that's clunky. <laughs> the names will be the only fictions here. Beyond the act of communication, sharing my story and experience in life, exploring fear and fate and the supernatural, for a lack of a better word, in the unknown universe, big and small, vulnerable confessions and base gossip, perhaps a lame excuse or two for the lifelong disappointments and why I am and where I will be, the purpose is hope. Hope that one reader or 1001 readers might empathize with the why behind the poor decisions I make, made, and most certainly will make. Uh, at the end of the chapter, I don't know if you can see this, uh, hopefully the publisher will do like a handwritten font because this is someone responding to the first chapter and all the other chapters after that. I assumed you intended me, you intended for me to find this. Maybe that's a lot for me to assume. Maybe it's not. I mean, you left it on your cruddy little coffee table with a literal yellow bow tied around the manuscript. Holy shit. I bet I'll have a lot to say about this book based on the opening chapter. Art Barbara, Jesus, dude. I promise my commentary will be as honest as you are claiming to be. That sentence by itself makes it sound like I am already accusing you of lying. I don't mean to. We've had our ups and downs, but I've always considered you to be one of my dearest, oldest friends. And my hope is you feel similarly. Frankly, I'm a little scared to read more to find out what you really think of me. Based on the title, I don't think it's vanity to assume that I'll play a large role in this um, memoir. Memory is a fucked up thing, especially as time passes, stretches and yawns. Your comparison of time to a shuffled deck of cards comes close to a truth or, or a truth, but time is better represented as a house of cards, an unimaginably large castle of cards, one in which rooms and entire wings collapse and are endlessly rebuilt. Those collapsed rooms and wings hold memories, both personal and collective. That card house is forever haunted by the lost memories and by the ones that are retained but changed. Sorry, I know this is your book, not mine. It occurs to me, if our memories of certain events differ, that doesn't necessarily mean one of us is lying. And hopefully any discrepancies don't mean we're both lying, even if we're not lying on purpose. I'll try to keep my comments solely to after each chapter. I will read and comment as I go without skipping ahead. I can't promise that I won't mark stuff within the manuscript though. Looking forward to reading what name you'll give me, Mr. Art Barbara. I'll stop there since I <laughs> uh, fucked everything up with technical difficulties. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Paul. <laughs> oh, fantastic. All right. 
So, uh, so now we're, we're on to, to Mary San Giovanni. So she is an award-winning American horror and thriller writer of over a dozen novels, including the Hollower Trilogy, Thrall, Chaos, the Kathy Ryan series, and others, as well as numerous novellas, short stories, and nonfiction. Her work has been translated internationally. She has a master's degree in writing popular fiction from Seton Hall University, Pittsburgh, and is currently a member of the Authors Guild, the International Thriller Writers, and pen writers. She is a co-host on the popular podcast, The Horror Show with Brian Keene, and hosts her own podcast on cosmic horror, Cosmic Shenanigans. She has won the distinction of being one of the first women to speak about writing at the CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, and offers talks and workshops on writing around the country. Born and raised in New Jersey, she currently resides in Pennsylvania. So Mary, whenever you are ready, you can go ahead and read. Okay. Hi, everyone. Uh, I wanted to... Uh... Thank you again for having me. I'm, I'm really excited and I'm not nervous about following Paul Trump. Like you're nervous. So <laughs> anyway, uh, I do some uh, cosmic horror uh, and a lot of times there's uh, crime elements mixed in it. So what I was gonna read is a little section of the first chapter of my forthcoming cosmic horror haunted house novel. Um, so we'll test it out, see what you guys think. Carrington House was old, but it didn't sigh like many old houses did. It didn't settle creaking into its foundations. Rather, it lorded its age and questionable venerability over the few other houses on the street. At the dead end of the cul-de-sac on Decatur Avenue, on the crest of the small hill, its dark gray windows looked down with the proud disdain of an iron-spined matron and the feral hunger of a wild beast. It was haunted. Of that, there had never been any doubt, although other questions were raised by its presence. Which town had the dubious honor of laying claim to it, for example, was subject for debate. It was located in the odd unclaimed space between the suburbs of Allen and Drummond, Vermont. And although it took its mailing address from Allen, the people there largely chose to disown it. So too, was there a question about the style the house's architects had been looking to capture? From its Queen Anne frame, fit with Gothic revival windows and sloping roofs, to its folk Victorian porch with vaguely Georgian pillars. There was rumination as to whether it had once been beautiful, whether light had ever dispelled the shadows from its corners, or if happiness had ever once held dominion over its brooding corridors. Most believed not. There were mixed rumors as well about its first owner and occupant, Samuel Carrington, a physicist who oversaw its construction in 1908. Some said he was a good man and a diligent research scientist. Others said that what was wrong with Carrington House was the eponymous man's fault, that the house was bad because the man behind it was too, and that no one should ever have experimented with physics the way he had. Whether he was a man troubled by a house or troubling to it, tragedy certainly seemed to follow him like a trailing scent or an echo, taking first a daughter, then a wife, a mother, and then a son from him, all within the walls or on the grounds of that house in the first decade of its existence. As with Carrington's life, so his death. The coroner's report lists the manner as undetermined. The cause of death has been at times over the last few decades attributed to blunt force trauma to the head, a self-inflicted broken neck, 
several puncture wounds to the chest leading to blood loss and a heart attack. At least there was a definitive pronouncement of death to hang on Carrington, unlike his successor, Raymond William Shortridge. Following the death of his wife and disappearance of his infant son, the latter man had entered the house one day in 1935 and had never come back out. These questions and more hung like a fog over Carrington House. The vanishing of the Shortridge males had started an evident trend, primarily in the subsequent homeowners, but occasionally in visitors and squatters. Disappearances for which there were no answers or explanations continued right up until 2017. Carrington House had outlived its masters, if it can even be said that such a house would suffer a master willingly. It had survived two fires, several violent storms, and 98 years of various tenants come and gone who fared little better than Carrington and Shortridge themselves. Many of those former inhabitants had tried unsuccessfully to dismantle some or all of the place in ways which themselves generated more confusion than explanation. Allegedly, at least one of the fires was deliberately set using a flammable oil poured onto the foyer in patterns somewhat re reminiscent of occult symbols. Still, Carrington House went on and on. It was as if the strength of its will kept it standing, relatively invulnerable to the elements or the whims of human superstition or enterprise. Despite the fact that it had been empty since 2006, following the possible suicide of its last occupant, Rose Schneider, it had not been condemned. Rumors attributed ownership to a nameless real estate holding company who would not resell. More to the point, they seemed unwilling to risk trying to tear it down. It was a universally accepted fact about the place that it was metaphysically, if not structurally, a dangerous house. Its being haunted was clearly firmly acknowledged by everyone who believed in such things. Its place secured in many prominent registries of such locations by paranormal investigators and mediums alike. Haunted by what? Well, that was another more complicated matter of dispute. It was, perhaps, the only haunted house on Earth that was not entirely on Earth. And that's all I'm going to read for that. <laughs> so thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Marion. Thank you for coming on and, and doing your reading from your upcoming published work. We really appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> All right, next up, we've got uh, Josh Mallerman. Josh is the New York Times bestselling author of Bird Box and Mallory, as well as one of two singer-songwriters for the Detroit rock band High Strung, whose song The Luck You Got can be heard as a theme song to the Showtime show Shameless. He lives in Michigan with his soulmate Allison Laco and countless animals. So Josh, whenever you are ready, you can go ahead and read. Hi. You can hear me, right? Hi, I'm Josh Mallerman, and this is my fiance, Allison Laco. Today we're gonna to read from a house at the bottom of a lake. As you can tell, Allison has spent a little too much time underwater. Are well, you looking? I didn't say anything. First, I'd like to tell you how I came up with the idea the, what was it? No, no, yes, you can tell where the idea came from, go ahead. All right, so Josh and I were canoeing on a lake 
in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. And the one lake led to like a second lake, a smaller lake. And then that one kind of led to this like overpass, this like tunnel where the walls were covered in graffiti, but it was like pretty graffiti. And that led to a third lake, which was much darker, much deeper, and more, much more remote. Josh was completely scared. And while we're canoeing, he says, oh my God, can you imagine if we passed over the, like the top of a steeple, like the steeple of a church, the very top of a church or the roof of a house, something to indicate how deep this lake was. And then he, well, okay, no, yeah, I could do it from here, yeah. So then I was like, the, after that, I was like, the second we get home, I gotta I got write this thing. And then, and then I did, and here we are. I'm gonna start somewhere in it where our star characters, Amelia and James, both 17 years old, discover the house and they are canoeing on a first date, which sounds like a fun first date, doesn't it? Sounds like a crazy one, hold on. First, to anyone that has one of these out there, cheers. To everyone that has a fifth line around in your desk, cheers. Okay. <clears throat> oh, I have music playing, can you hear it? No, it's the thing. Anyway. The third lake felt inhabited or like it once was, or maybe it was just that whoever used the service drive came here often enough to leave some energy behind. Deliverance, Amelia said, but that was silly. They weren't in the backwoods of Tennessee. And besides, that's what everybody said when they were in a canoe and felt a little weird about their surroundings. The shoreline was crowded with tall pines that rose from dark green shrubs. The water was murky as if the mud from the lake floor had come up to see who had cleared the tunnel. I can't believe my uncle never told me about this, James said, but Amelia thought she understood. Given the grandeur and beauty of the first two lakes, there was no reason to ever visit this one. It was an afterthought, the clogged gutter of an otherwise beautiful home. And there was a smell to it too, not quite garbage, but like personal belongings no longer needed. Amelia had smelled something like it at estate sales with her mom and dad. That's it, she said. What's it? They were paddling again, going farther from the tunnel, getting closer to the middle of the new lake. It feels like we're seeing something we shouldn't be seeing, something private. James thought about it. And do you smell that, he asked? Yes, but what do you smell? Old age, he turned around and smiled at her. Amelia smiled too, she thought of that first lake. Should they go back to it? Ah, it's not so bad, she said, wanting to remain positive. If this was the first lake we saw today, I don't think it looks so dismal, uh, really. Yeah, it's, it's, all, it's always about comparisons. I think I'd have felt the same. Well, even if we hadn't seen the other two, but we did see the other two, well, we did. It wasn't small, but it wasn't huge either, about half the size of the first lake and two thirds that of the second. There were fewer trees and shoreline and they could see where the mountains slipped cold into the water. They were paddling toward them, unvisited. The words seemed to float up and out of the water, slip wet into Amelia's mind. Hey, uh, you hungry still, James asked. We didn't really finish our lunch. The question was jarring, Amelia thought, out of place. But why? Because you guys were eating lunch on the second lake. This is the third lake. Things are different now. She looked over the edge of the canoe. A fish floated on its side, a foot below the surface. Dead. But it was more like the fish was looking up, looking up at her. No, I'm, I'm okay, she said. But the fish unnerved her. Was something wrong with the water? Dead fish in a lake was natural, of course, but it was more like about the look in the fish's eye, like it made actual eye contact, fish and girl. 
Well, I'm, I'm always hungry, James said as a kid. I used to, holy shit. Amelia looked quick to James. She'd been thinking of the fish when he yelled. Was he yelling about the fish? What? What? He lifted his paddle out of the water and Amelia did the same. James was staring at the lake's surface, wide-eyed, too wide-eyed. Amelia looked and she saw it too, a roof. Oh God, she said, oh my God. They drifted past it, over it, a small bird in its sky, a tiny airplane for two. Was that a, James started. Yes, Amelia said, that was a house. It was true then. They both seen it, a house submerged, a rooftop beneath the surface. And yet it was so dark down there. James snapped back first, jammed his paddle into the water and started paddling in the opposite direction, driving the canoe in reverse. Amelia did the same. Then they drifted over the house again, the house underwater. Without speaking, they gripped the edge of the canoe at the same time, their fingertips touching the chipped paint. Sunlight tap danced across that surface, a glittering curtain, a welcoming, a reveal. Not much of one. Oh my God, Amelia said again. It's all she could think to say. It's huge, James said. If the shingled roof was any indication, it was a big house beneath them, underwater. They looked at each other at the same time, and it was stated silently that they were going to check it out. They were going to go into this water. No self-respecting 17-year-olds on a first date could paddle away from this. But first, for a minute or two, for now, they just stared. The chaser five minutes later. <laughs> We've got a ladder, James said, shaking it loose from the life jackets and towels on the floor of the canoe. So we can get back in, Amelia said. This was not a question. This was her accepting the turn the afternoon had taken. The roof rippled with waves unseen, undulations beneath the surface. Amelia, st Amelia started laughing. What else was there to do? Unless the roof was floating, there had to be a house beneath it. James joined her in her laughing. What else was there to do? It's a fucking house, she said. Then she squealed because she was on a first date and they discovered something crazy enough to call magic. James draped the ladder over the canoe's edge. When the rungs clacked against the chip paint, he felt a twinge of guilt Uncle Bob. Did Uncle Bob know about this roof? Still smiling, feeling the charge of discovery, Amelia looked across the lake to the entrance of that tunnel, a half hole from here, cartoonish, like someone had painted it on a dip in the mountains. It's not a real entrance, she thought. It's a solid wall. Then she shook the silly thought aside, and, but couldn't shake a truer one. The tunnel makes for a slow getaway. She looked back to the submerged roof. James was shaking his head slow side to side. Wow. He looked at her and they laughed again lightly in the way something uncanny can make someone laugh. Not funny, impossible. All right, James said, gripping the rope ladder. Who's going first? The individual rung looked like kindling in his hands. Amelia had a vision of the ladder erupting into flames. No easy way back in the two then. But what unnecessary dark, dark thoughts to have. I'll do it, she said. No wet blanket today. Uh, uh, okay, you go first. No, 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 uh, no, no, you go first. No, 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 really, no, Amelia, go. No, 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 you go first. I think I need a minute to get used to the idea, she said. She was excited, but she was scared. There was more than just a tip of the iceberg quality to this roof. Who knew the size and scope beneath it? But we definitely both have to do it. Well, I'm glad you're saying that, James said. We could just as easily paddle away and pretend this never happened too. Could we? Well, no, he thought. Looking in her eyes just then, she looked very dry to him. James scanned the shoreline. There was no sign of life, no angry old man to holler at them, no resident in sight to tell his Uncle Bob what he and the girl had been up to. 
It felt to James like they were in the center of a silent room, a room of their own. He checked the surface of the water. He was looking for snapping turtles, snakes, the bubbles of something breathing below. What a terrible turn the date would take if James were to dive in and get bitten by a moccasin. But the longer he stared at the surface, the more the rippling roof looked like a painting, oils, like diving into that, into its false reality, would prove to be much worse than anything a snake could do. Uh, Amelia, he said, and he discovered he liked saying her name, Amelia. How, did, how do you think it got down there? God's dollhouse. Wait, what? Well, no, I don't know. Did you just make that up? Well, yeah. But that, it sounded like a movie title. Oh, thank you. I think it was built down there, James said. No, probably not. Had to be. I don't think so. I think it broke the ice. Ice. Yeah, someone tried to move it across the lake and it sank. Well, that's interesting, but these lakes never ice over. Well, see, someone should have told them that. James smiled. The, the canoe had shifted its position and the submerged rooftop was nearer the back now. On his knees, James used his paddle to bring them back to where they were. Amelia thought again of Uncle Bob's warning about tipping. Are you scared, she asked? Uh, be honest, I'm always honest, are you? I mean, yeah, are you scared? She was smiling, the arched eyebrows smile, the arched eyebrows smile, friends give each other before they enter the house of horrors at the county fair or press play on a particularly frightening movie. Ready or not, here we go. Yeah, sure, but uh, I'm not, not enough not to do it. Okay, same here. And what was there to be afraid of? In fact, after having spoken it, Amelia felt almost no fear at all. It was a submerged house for crying aloud. It was cool as what it was. Yet looking at it, the house, the shingles seemed to move uniformly as if it wasn't the surface of the water that created the illusion, but something beneath the roof, rolling along its distance. Fish, perhaps, mice, mice. As the roof sloped, its edges vanished into the murky shadows. Not only was Amelia unsure how large the house was, she wasn't even sure how big the roof was. Those same shadows continued, merged with the darkness that was the rest of the lake. She looked up out across the lake and realized how big this third lake actually was. When you imagine yourself slipping into the water, imagine your tiny body engulfed by it, the lake looked a lot bigger. Is there, uh, <clears throat> is there anything in there that can bite us in the house? No the water. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's a bad answer. I know, but no, no, it's okay. There's, there's probably not. It's just a lake. It's not the ocean. Right. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Then. He rose suddenly and Amelia's heart thudded bunny-like in her chest. Okay, here we go. It'll be amazing, she said, trying to send some confidence this way. James smiled at her. He was standing up, balancing. When he removed his shirt, Amelia noticed how soft his chest looked. His white arms shone against the dark blue backdrop of the lake. Then he dove in. Amelia gripped the sides of the rocking canoe and looked over the edge. As he sank, the ripples created a blurry wall of white foam and bubbles. For a three count, Amelia couldn't see him. We swallowed him, she thought. James popped back up, his hair plastered wet to his head. Wow, he said, teeth chattering. It's really fucking cold. Amelia didn't want to tell him how small he looked, treading the surface with the huge roof looming beneath him. She didn't want to tell him that he'd added scale to the sight. How long can you hold your breath, she asked. Uh, I don't know, how long can someone hold a breath? Five minutes, five minutes? Well, I mean, a minute or two, I don't know. James dunked his head under the water. He looked at it, looked at the house. He came back up. Wow, this is a house. Yeah, it really is. They stared at each other, James in the water, Amelia at the edge of the green canoe. Something passed between them unspoken, something like, be careful. But like they both said it at each other. As in, be careful now, yes, but let's be careful in everything that follows this too. 
James took a deep breath and went under. Thank you so much, Josh. Snort the rest of it. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, <clears throat> yes, thank you. She just wanted to say goodbye and thank you. Thank you for the reading, for having us. And thank you for the for the performance, Josh. Yeah. <laughs> Especially with the ambient music in the background. Were you able to hear it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, sweet. Awesome. <laughs> Awesome. Well, uh, next up, we've got Brenda S. Tolian. Uh, she is a Southwestern Gothic horror writer from Southern Colorado. She's an active member of the Denver Horror Collective Horror Writers Association and the Horror Writers Guild. Her work has appeared in Haunted, uh, MTL, the Anthology, 101 Proof Horror, Consumed Tales Inspired by the Wendigo, and Twisted Pulp Magazine. She also writes and has published academically on subjects ranging from postmodernism to Nabokov. She has presented Southwestern Gothic short stories and creepy academic topics at the Southwestern Popular American Culture Association Conference. Additionally, Brenda will deliver academic work at StokerCon within the Anne Radcliffe Convention this May. Her thesis, Blood Mountain, is currently under committee review at Regis University, a collection based within the hauntingly beautiful San Luis Valley she calls home. So Brenda, whenever you are ready. Hi, thanks for having me on here. Um, I had to get prepared really fast, but um, I'm just gonna go into it. Um, this is a story that I wrote in Twisted Pulp magazine called Snake Man. I'm just gonna read a little bit of it. Sir, did I hear a rattlesnake? The officer asked the colossal wall of Mount Blanco framing his head. I didn't want to full on say yes, but I couldn't deny that the officer heard not one rattlesnake, but rattlesnakes, plural. I blinked up at my reflection, tinted blue in his typical issued aviators and smiled. I could have said in chorus with him the next bit as he leaned into my rolled down window, license and registration, please. I was hoping Susan, my sometime girlfriend, had not been in the glove box. If she had, then the papers might not be covering the gun. Swallowing, I turned real slow, hope and luck was on my side. If she hadn't, then the Glock 9 mil would still be discreetly covered by papers and wrapped in a red bandana. I tried to remember the last time she'd been in the car and if we had argued. Susan was a bit rough around the edges and liked to slam around my car when she was pissed off. I decided it had been a month or so and I'd used my gun since then. I packed illegally my rap sheet a bit longer than I liked. Bad luck seemed to follow me in a hopscotch pattern over years. I glanced at the stern face of the sheriff's deputy who was a long way from Cottonwood. I swallowed spit and reached slow, popping the latch. The glove box door swung open as I held my breath. The wrapped gun was thankfully covered and out of sight. I snagged the papers and handed them over. I always kept my wallet on the dash. I guess you could say I get pulled over a lot and through force of habit, I found it an excellent idea to have it close rather than a back pocket. Cops are generally jittery out here in this valley with the tweakers, hippies, and aliens. I gave him the license. He studied the plastic card, flipped through the papers like they were his very own divorce decree. He glanced between the card and my face and did not seem to see the resemblance, which there would not be one as the guy on the card was not quite as good looking. Bill Hardy? Yep. Behind me, the snakes were getting testy, like they had taken offense at being pulled over. I wasn't too sure of the count, but at least six were jammed in a box across the back seat. 
I had covered it in a burlap potato sack, but you can you can't just hide the racket of a full box of snakes can produce. Do you have a commercial wildlife permit for snakes? For what? I asked Stalling. The corners of his mouth rolled into a downturn. The snakes hissed and rattled behind me. I glanced back, sweat dripping down my brow. Uh, no, officer, I said casually as possible. They're pets. He leaned in, his face set grim. The devilish sun radiated down, making the mountains waver like oil through the windshield. Sir, in Colorado, it's not permissible to have rattlers without a license. I just shrugged. I knew the law, but also knew my purpose in having them. Please get out of the vehicle, sir, he said, stepping back. Behind my seat, the rattlers buzzed. I shook my head, realizing that the good day was quickly going sour. Nothing like the law to mess up a solid plan. The trooper shifted on his feet, unable to hide both his anxiety and his annoyance. Out of the car, sir. I popped the door, showing my hands. There was no sense in getting the officer all worked up. He searched me, lifting my Hawaiian hibiscus shirt to find a knife at my waist and in my boot, and then cuffed me, leading me to the back of the car. The officer looked pissed, especially when I smiled at him. He went to his patrol car, watching as if daring me to do something stupid. I didn't. I was sweating balls when he finally walked back, calling in on his shoulder radio. He headed on past me to my driver's side door. I think he meant to search it and he leaned on the driver's side. I just uh, watched somewhat bored and fucking hot. I was staring at Mount Blanca, tripping over a dust devil to the east when I heard him scream. Quick as shit, I saw his body go stiff and then he fell backward, holding his neck and right after slittered one of the snakes. The snake must have been all riled up because it went directly after him like its feelings were hurt. The officer rolled around trying to use his legs to push away, all the while grasping at his neck. The snake rose, swaying like one of those king cobras. It paused, then launched at the man, biting him over and over. I screamed like a bitch. I'm not sure if it hissed or if my brain just added to the sensory overdub to make it more frightening. Either way, I almost pissed myself. The officer cried out, his mouth wide open, looking at me with crazy eyes, and I shrugged at him, kind of jumping up and down, wondering what he thought I could do now. The truth was, I could do nothing at all with my hands cuffed behind my back. Well, I could do something, but snakes in this sort of mood are beyond dangerous, and I didn't want to die today. The snake was acting like a rabid animal, biting him all over his body. I had never seen anything like it. I finally decided I should probably do something and inched closer. I moved slowly because snakes are a bit like officers of the law and how nervous they can be, and I respected both, mostly. I followed the crazy movements of the reptile. If I made a mistake, both of us would be bloated, ant-covered corpses when the deputy's co-workers found us. I waited until the snake had its head on the ground and stomped it. Typically, I would have cut off the head, but my knives were on the hood of the car and my hands were useless behind my back. The officer had stopped me out on road G, which was a little bit of gravel and a whole lot of sand. I chose the shitty road because the police usually wouldn't try to, their tires or luck out here. The back roads required that you let the air out of your tires to get some decent traction. Right now, it made killing the snake under a boot a bit more complicated, and the snake was pissed off royal. Every time I tried to smash it, it just went further down into the sand. Yo, officer, you gotta roll off a bit, I yelled the full body of the snake wrapping up violently around my leg. It for sure did not want to die. The officer moaned and shook his body, breathing in pain. 
I had thought of letting up the pressure and jogging backwards, seeing if the snake would just slither off. It seemed in this instance to be the only option. Come on, man, move, I yelled. The officer tried, screamed, and then collapsed in a concerning, stiff, non-living sort of way. I cursed at that snake that whipped around my leg, the infernal rattle droning on. I stood for close to half an hour, my skin turning red under the blistering sun. Nothing seemed to move around me, except the damn snake that was finally growing exhausted. Some vultures swooped overhead for a bit, impatiently waiting for me to move away from the body of the officer. I wondered if I could be prosecuted for the natural behavior of a snake. I know I had locked the box, and it's not like they were dogs who would just bite their way out. Probably didn't matter because now with the sun-cooked corpse of a dead deputy in the road and a lanky 40-something in a Hawaiian shirt, hands cuffed and standing on the head of a snake, was the next ridiculous problem. The situation would be funny if it weren't so sad compared to what I'd set out to do. Thank you. That was fantastic. Thank you so much. So uh, next up, we have Jeremy Robert Johnson. Uh, he is the author of the novels The Loop and Skullcrack City, as well as the critically acclaimed collection Entropy and Bloom. In 2008, he worked with the Mars Volta to tell the story behind their Grammy award-winning album The Bedlam and Goliath. In 2010, he spoke about weirdness and metaphor as a survival tool at the Fractal 10 Conference in Medellin, and Columbia. And in 2017, his short story, When Susurrus Stirs, was adapted for film and won numerous awards, including the Final Frame Grand Prize and Best Short Novel Film at the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Jeremy is at work on a host of new books. Jeremy, whenever you are ready, you have the floor. Hey, y'all can hear me? Okay, um, uh, first of all, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's been a long, um, it's, it's a bucket list item for me, honestly to uh, finally appear at Noir at the Bar. This is something I've been wanting to do for years, watching the legacy of it, hearing about people's appearances. Um, and yeah, so my book tour kind of got COVID canceled this summer. Uh, and so I did it from this garage. I'm in my garage right now. Um, and one of the things I missed out on was uh, I was finally gonna get out to New York and do Book Expo and KGB. KGB is like a bucket list thing for me. But Noir at the Bar is up there too. And so it's this real redemptive thing today that I finally get to be part of it. I've always felt like, yeah, I'm a horror guy, but um, you know, I'm I'm writing crime novels with weird shit in them too. Uh, you know, it's crime, but there's brain-eating monsters or biotech parasites, or I, I write a lot about corporations, so I'm inherently writing about crime. I just feel like that's kind of my thing. Um, so super lovely to be here. Uh, second thing that's kind of aligned in the universe right now. Quick shout out. Uh, fellow crime and horror author Stephen Graham Jones hit the New York Times bestseller list this week, uh, which is just another one of those tiny things, those little things where you feel like the universe is aligning a little bit in the right direction. So um, anyway, thanks to Noir at the Bar and uh, cheers to Stephen. And um, I'm going to read something short and not sweet, uh, something short and dark, and it's about love. Um, it's a ghost story. Uh, Bruce Holland Rogers and I wrote a series of ghost stories, nine of them, um, in a form called a Symmetrina back in the day, um, which is basically like a series of flash fiction 
pieces that meditate on a central theme we wrote about ghosts um, ghosts and loss and all that and it appeared in cemetery dance back in the day and this is one one of those nine stories um, I was working with Bruce and he uh, he's won everything like world fantasy Bram Stoker uh, pushcart all that stuff and so this is one of those ones where I was like okay I, I'm working with Bruce I gotta I can't be over the top I got to be subtle so this is a very rare um, subtle thing for me and uh, it's called the encore. 30 deep black strands of her hair from the bedroom carpet. I'm collecting what remains of my beautiful Zhao Xi just days ago murdered by her defective heart. Before her passing, Zhao Xi was capable of flight, toured the world as part of the dynasty circus, the suspended woman. 747s were her daily commute, Paris, Tokyo, London, seldom earthbound, whether borne by flying metal behemoths or her own luxuriant hair. Acrobats, contortionists, fire eaters, none matched her radiance. 50 more hairs entangled in her brushes. I'd combed her hair for an hour before calling the paramedics, held my face to it, swallowed its cherry scent. She was the girl with the feather bones floating before red backdrops, her arm length purple black hair tied to a silken blue rope, arms and legs fanned, swimming against gravity and winning. I would watch for the drift of butterfly dust crossing the stage lights beams. Could I sleep, I would pray this image into my dreams. 27 more hairs from the shower drain, gently washed until they squeak. I've been offered dope and therapy. Her friend Bai, equally confused by Zhao Xi's early death, even offered me sex as sympathy, but all are empty solace. 72 hairs on her clothes. Zhao Xi's been dead 314 hours as of now. Time will slide past like nothing, then constrict. Every second is suddenly stark, cold, and lonely like I'd never imagined. It's all quicksand, just a matter of how long I can drift. 94 strands are hiding, entwined with silvery party tinsel, coiled around the motorized carpet scrubber in our vacuum. The tensile strength of a single hair fiber is equal to copper wire. There's not enough left of her for a hangman's knot, but any knot will do. The chair topples beneath me. I hover for a moment before gravity asserts itself. Although I can't breathe, I taste the scent of cherries. Zhao Xi holds me again, and we float home. So that's that. It's uh, not sweet, but uh, happy almost Valentine's Day, everybody. Thank you so much, Jeremy. It was, uh, it was a pleasure having you on. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to come out. All right, uh, next up, we've got Maurice Meyer. Uh, she's the author of Rag, Heartbreaker, Northwood, and the Seventh Mansion, and she lives in Chicago. Maurice, whenever you are ready, you are free to go ahead and read. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here. And uh, thanks to Hillary, who I think uh, suggested me for this series. So thank you, Hillary. It's a real pleasure to read with all of these great readers. Um, this is a short story, work in progress, an excerpt called, They Went On Together. They go out. One of the rams stands by the door with some other sheep, hooves restless in the dead grass. God nods to the ram. Its black skin twitches. Abraham rubs a dry hand over his mouth. Don't forget your knife, God whispers. 
and Abraham goes to the house to get it from the wall where it hangs next to the others. Abraham rejoins God on the patio and Isaac smiles, a lock of thick yellow hair tied against his forehead. Abraham claps his hands together. Ready, he says. Isaac salutes. They walk up the hill of dead grass and stone. The ram follows. Isaac smiles, checking his phone. God raises a brow. Put that away, Abraham says. Yes, dad, they walk. The knife hanging from a thin loop of leather taps Abraham's thigh. The sun gets hot immediately. Abraham knuckles the sweat from his brows. God stumbles over a rock, curses it. The rock burns for eternity. Isaac gathers wood wherever he sees it. How much do we need? Abraham's jaw gets hard. He glances at God, who shrugs. A lot, Abraham says. Cool, Isaac says, and kneels to gather another twig, blowing the dirt from its side. They walk. Finally, God says, here's good. They stop. A clearing at the top of the hill, more useless grass, black pits from old fires. Isaac drops the wood, stretches out on a long piece of rock that is really half of a larger rock split in two. The stone burns and Isaac's eyes burn because he looks straight at the sun. He cries automatically. Abraham walks around, tugging at his beard. Isaac observes his father, so beautiful, his father, the butcher of sheep. Look, you know I've been out of work for a while, Abraham says, speaking to the grass instead of to Isaac. Yes, dad. And there is this drought. Yes, dad. And I think the rest of the grass is going to die and then all the animals are going to die and then you and I will die. Yes, dad. Silence. Abraham fiddles with his knife. Unless we do it out of order, Abraham says. He spits and straps the blade against his thigh. Standing among the parched branches of a large bush, God holds his breath. Isaac wipes his cheek with the back of his wrist. Suddenly he is bored. Look, dad, are you gonna do it or not? Abraham quits stroking the blade against himself. Give me a goddamn minute. He paces. His son's flesh draped beneath the hot sun, tanning. Fuck, he whispers. God sits on the rock near Isaac's head, stirring a finger in the boy's hair. Your boy is made of gold, he says. Mm-hmm, says Abraham. It will be difficult to kill him. You still think you can do it? Abraham makes a circle in the dead grass with his walking. God watches. Isaac takes a Sharpie from his pocket, draws a broken line against his throat. Does this help? Abraham scowls. Don't get smart. God clucks. Abraham turns away, face flushed. God leans and whispers into Isaac's ear, I love your father. Abraham pukes his anger into the weeds, covers the puke with dirt kicked up with a sandal. He's upset he can only do it once, God explains. He can only please me this way one time and then it will be over and he will never be able to please me as well as this ever again. Don't you think that's sad? Isaac holds his breath, then lets it go. You're crazy, he says. God grins, but don't you think it's sad? Yes, Isaac finally admits, the air literally hot inside his mouth when he breathes in. God sits up, removing his hands from Isaac's sides and wiping them against his white knees. 
All sons love their fathers, God says. That's why you're both going to do whatever I say. Isaac wants to reply, well, that's not true. I know Harper Pallister poured hot syrup over his father's eyes while he was sleeping, and that was probably definitely not out of love. And God interrupts the thought and says, and for that reason, Harper K. Pallister will be damned forever. Isaac snorts, impressed. Abraham comes back over, dragging his sandals. The ram cocks its head, blinks its black eye. Well, Abraham says, I guess I'm ready. Now, says God, mm-hmm. Abraham lifts his knife, bicep gleaming, and freezes. The blade is perfectly still, sunk in the air as if into stone. Isaac slides his back against the altar, trying to find a cool spot on the rock. Abraham blinks. Maybe an hour goes by. The sun doesn't budge. I'm doing it, Abraham says, but doesn't. And God presses his finger to the tip of Abraham's knife and cuts himself. And Abraham yelps and says, what the hell? And God slaps him with a hand like marble. Isaac watches his father's head snap to the side and the blood run hard from his mouth. The ram takes a step back, then goes still again. A fly sinks into the fur on its neck. Look, says God, running his fingers over Abraham's wet chin, his arm so long he can do it while sitting. Calm down. You don't even know what's going to happen. I know, Abraham says, and his face quivers. I know I don't have to. God's eyes slit. Who told you that? And Abraham shamed gesture, an opening of his hand towards the ground. I taught myself to read, Abraham whispers, and God's face grows infinitely dark. Damn you, God says, and Isaac sits up, looking at his phone, and God snaps, lie down and let your father kill you. I want to watch, but nobody moves. The pages of the devil's book ripple in the wind. Look, God says finally, you are both very precious to me. He strokes his own long hair. Do you want me to do it or not, Abraham sighs, and God looks nervous, his gold eyes rolling towards the ram. The ram bows its head. Yes, God says, and Abraham leaps towards Isaac, but God holds his arm over the boy to stop the father. Never mind, God says. Isaac rolls his eyes. Abraham throws the knife down with a frustrated yelp. What did you ask me for? Oh, but you love to be asked, God purrs. Isn't that true? Because I ask you and nobody else. Isaac smirks and says, it's true, he does like it. He points to Abraham. Admit it, he says, and laughs. Abraham opens his mouth, closes it, his face burning. God sighs, well, what do you want? We want to go to heaven, Isaac says. Now, God asks. Isaac nods. Well, it's a long time before that happens, God says. We'll see. They wait. It gets dark. The ram jams his horns in the gold grass. Isaac looks at his phone, back on the stone, now cold. No reception. In other versions, the hill is lush. Abraham has everything he wants, and a wife who is at least 100 years old waits at home for them to return, the sun intact. This is not that version. God doesn't have any respect for order. Death can be any place. But the devil was careful to write it all down, so God can't change his mind now, even in this version, though his mind has actually changed. He would love to see the boy tied by his hands and covered with his father's knife for once. Abraham fiddles with a little stone. God counts the hairs on Isaac's head. How to raise a son is a mystery to him. 
Eventually the ram is caught and tied to the altar. Isaac stacks the wood that was meant to burn his own body, but not really. Abraham kneels on the altar and cuts grimly into the beast. Beneath the curly fur, the flesh is gray, then white, then red. Isaac sits on Abraham's lap and God vanishes. The ram is consumed by fire. Blood bubbles and blackens on the rock and Abraham blows Isaac's hair from his face. The fire dies. That was crazy, Isaac says, and they laugh, then sit in silence a moment to meditate on the Lord. Then they go home. And then what? They live, and their children live, and their children's children live, until we are either stubble or we are, or we are well-fed calves. That's all the prophet says about the future, and that is the end of the book. Thank you. Well, wow, thank you so much uh for being here and, and for reading really appreciate it so uh so last up we've got uh gabino iglesias uh he's the writer editor or he is a writer editor professor and book critic living in austin texas he's the author of zero saints and coyote songs and the editor of both sides his work has been nominated to the bram stoker and locust awards and he won the wonderland book award for best novel his nonfiction has appeared in the new york times and the los angeles times his fiction has been published, which is an option for film. His reviews appear in places like NPR, Publishers Weekly, The San Francisco Chronicle, Criminal Element, Mystery Tribune, Volume 1 Brooklyn, The Los Angeles Review of Books, and other venues. He's been a juror for the Shirley Jackson Awards twice and has judged the Pink Big Book Contest, the Splatterpunk Awards, the Horror Category of the British Fantasy Awards, and the New Film Prose Prize. He teaches creative writing at Southern New Hampshire University's online MFA program and runs a series of low-cost online writing workshops. So Gabino, whenever you are ready, you have the floor. Someone, can y'all hear me? Sweet. Someone took a look at this uh, amazing list of writers and then they said, um, let's make Gabino go last. And I, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you were looking to shame me into never reading again, I can tell you, I have no shame. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills, skills I've acquired over a long career, skills that make me a nightmare for someone like you. Now listen, if you promise to never do anything like this to me ever again. This will be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. And I will find you. And I will kill you. Anyway, I'm working on the uh, second round of edits for the next novel. Uh, it'll be done at some point. Um, and uh, it'll be out in the world, hopefully, fingers crossed, light some candles. Uh, there's a guy outside sleeping uh, in a van. These two individuals are in a house in San Antonio. They are uh, going to El Paso to uh, do a little job, but their boss asked them to bring a little something. They're going to visit a kid uh, known as El Milagrito, the little miracle. Uh, one of them knows what's going on. 
the other one is not exactly uh, uh, <laughs> very in the know uh, on uh, what's about to go down. And they show up to this house and they have to talk to the uh, kid's grandma, whose name is Sonia. And uh, this is where we start. Sonia waved us toward the second door. The walls in that room had the strangest wallpaper I'd ever seen. Then I realized it wasn't wallpaper. The walls were covered with enough crosses to convince anyone that it was a store of religious paraphernalia and not someone's home. Crosses of all sizes, colors, materials, and textures covered every inch of all walls from floor to ceiling. Crosses with a loincloth Jesus bleeding from under his ribs, his eyes looking up at the pain in the sky, his mouth open in a silent plead for mercy. A cross with a masked luchador replacing Jesus. Crosses with photos of people nailed, tied, or otherwise glued to them. Crosses with strange stains that look too much like blood to be anything else. Crosses with words on them. La pasión de Cristo. Inri. Jesús el Redentor. Santa Muerte, protégeme. Miserere, meus Deus. Cristo salva. Bless us, Father. Bendita sea tu sangre. That level of devotion isn't healthy. The room's only window had been covered with a black plastic and there was only a ceiling lamp on a room emitting a dim yellowish light. I could make out that there was a bed in the middle of the room. A thin kid lay on top of it, apparently sleeping. Next to the bed was a massive brown man sitting on a chair and a small table covered with various bottles of pills and what looked like some creams. The kid on the bed was lying on his right side, facing us, his eyes closed. A diaper was the only thing covering his body. My eyes were still adapting to the gloom, but I could see the kid's bones. They looked like they were trying to escape the thin prison of his skin. The kid had a huge forehead and messy black hair sticking out at odd angles. He opened his eyes while I was looking at him, but he didn't acknowledge us. Drool fell from the side of his mouth and pulled on the already soaked pillow. His arms and legs were bent as if he'd been frozen in the middle of a seizure that had made his body cramp up. A gnat flew around me, its persistent cry hitting the back of my brain as my eyes adjusted to the darkness. I looked at the kid's curled hands, which he kept close to his chest. Both hands were missing fingers, either the whole digit or part of it. I looked down, same thing was happening with his legs. The upper half of his left ear, which was the only one I could see, was also missing. The rugged scar tissue poked from underneath the hair like a pale mountain range emerging from a black ocean. I thought of a hundred movies where war heroes showed off their vital scars. You know, where someone disrobed to share the aftermath of some horrible torture. This was like that, except it wasn't makeup. There were large scars on his arms, legs, and torso that looked like someone had tried to scoop out chunks of his flesh or carved him up with a scalpel. Some of the scars were white, their ghostly pallor betraying their age, but others were angry, fresh pink that spoke of recent pain and spilled blood. I needed to get the fuck out of there. The man sitting next to the bag was a mountain of brown flesh so big I couldn't see the chair he occupied. At least I assumed there was a chair there. All I could see was his rotund form hunkered down in that corner, his legs bent in a way that made me clearly think that there was something there, so he was sitting. His eyes were droopy and he had a large patch of dark skin under each eye. He was wearing jeans, a white ball cap, and a white t-shirt, 
big enough to make a tent for two and have enough material left to cover the floor of the tent with it. His arms were covered with ink, just like Juanca's. I couldn't make out any of it in the darkness. His hands were on his lap. The right one holding an Uzi, the way some people hold a book or place their hand on a napping cat. Small brick of gold and diamonds adorned his right pinky and a huge cross hung from his neck from a thick gold chain. Whatever these people were doing in this decrepit old house with a fucked up kid, they apparently needed serious security. The fat man looked at us with dead eyes and exhaled like a wounded animal, finally giving up the ghost. You got the money? Sonia asked, standing at the foot of the bed. Wonka shoved his hand in his right pocket of his jeans and pulled out a bent white envelope. It was thick. He handed it to Sonia. She grabbed it, considered its weight for a second, and threw it to the fat man. The man switched the Uzi to the left hand, picked up the envelope, and placed it on the table next to him. No one counted the money. You know I don't like Don Vasquez. He's the devil. Don't bring his money my way again. I don't like whatever he's doing over there with these people. Or with that witch I heard he has now. He's bad news, and you should know that. People who get near him rarely last long. That man, hace tratos con el chamuco. Tiene un infierno negro donde debería tener el corazón. I'm only going to do this because it's you, but it's the last time. I hope you have that very clear. You got it, Sonia. This is the last time I ask you for anything for Vasquez. You have my word. Te lo prometo. Sonia exhaled. It turned into a phlegmy cough that bent her over even more. Her chest rattled like an oracle. Uh, the big man placed his hands on his knees and pushed himself up to a standing position with a grunt. He was at least a foot taller than me. Juan and I stepped out of his way as Osvaldito sucked in his big gut to squeeze by us. He pulled his arms in and hunched his shoulders to go through the door. Sonia moved to the head of the bed. Sonia did some things and she did them with a quickness and agility that matched the youth in her eyes instead of the oldness of her body. She moved to the bottom of the bed with a pad in her left hand and used her right to bring the kids' feet together and lift them. His legs moved more like sticks than human limbs. And I could see clearly now that the small toe and the next to it, and the one next to it uh, were missing from his left foot. Only the big toe was left on his right foot. Sonia reached into the bag again and took out some gauze, alcohol wipes, and a white packet with some blue lettering on it and set it down on the bed. Quick clot, a blood stopper. The fat man sauntered back in, breathing as if he just run 10 miles into Texas heat. He approached Sonia and handed her a huge gym bag with a hideous flower print that reminded me of a plastic covered sofa. My mom and I had once taken from the side of the road while living in one of the many trailer parks we lived in in Houston. The dumb sofa wouldn't feel through the door, so my mom pushed it against the side of the trailer and left it outside. It rotted quickly. I often threw rocks at the rats that lived in it. Sonia placed the bag with the flowers on the floor and dug in with both hands, this time shaking out something long and red. When she stood straight, she was holding compact bolt cutters. What the fuck is going on here? The question was out of my mouth before I realized I was speaking. There wasn't a single scenario in my head in which bolt cutters and medical supplies meant anything good, especially not in a tiny dark room in an dilapidated house with a fat bastard only an Uzi. My eyes darted to Osvaldito. The Uzi no longer looked like a toy in his massive hands. Juanca put his hand on my shoulder. Relax, man. 
We're just getting what Don Vasquez needs. It'll be quick. We'll be out of here in no time. But Juan squeezed my shoulder hard. His eyes opened wide, the wide in them silent warning. Calmate, he said. He split the word into three syllables. Calmate. It said much more than calm down. It was a threat wrapped, wrapped in the promise of violence and the recognition that I was one of my element and needed not to make any trouble for either one of us. A voice at the back of my head started whisper, fuck no, fuck no. But I stood by like an idiot, a silent witness to an unfolding nightmare. Sonia nodded and Osvaldito got up with another grunt and approached the bed. He grabbed the kid's legs, hooked his arms around them and held them against his belly, cradling them like a baby. He did it all without letting go of the gun. Sonia ripped one of the alcohol wipes open and used it to clean the bolt cutters, focusing on the black blades at the end. Then she put the tool down and wiped her hands and then the kid's foot. The kid's eyes were empty. It made something crack in my chest. He wasn't moving except for the rhythmic expansion of his withered ribcage. I allowed my eyes to roam his collection of scars and missing parts again, trying to understand. Sonia grabbed the third toe on the kid's left foot, which was really the first because the other two were missing, and pulled it up. She gripped it and used her hand to guide the implement under the kid's foot. She then wiggled the toe into the tool's metallic V-shaped mouth. What the? Oswalito looked straight at me. His eyes were dark pools of hatred. His stare a warning, keep your mouth shut. The Uzi was also looking at me. I swallowed my words again. Aguantale bien las piernas, Osvaldo. I'm going to make some force here, said Sonia. The fat man leaned on the legs a bit and readjusted his grip as Sonia applied pressure. The bolt cutter's handles approached each other and stopped. The blades closed around the toe, digging into the skin. Sonia inhaled, repositioned her right arm, and applied her weight to the top handle. The blades closed a bit more. Then there was a loud crunch as the blades slid against the kid's skin and clicked together. The, the toe thudded as it landed on the pad, followed by a trickle of blood. Bile rose up the back of my throat. Sonia pulled the compact bolt cutters away from the kid's foot. For a second there, there was a tiny circle of bone and gristle where the toe had been, but blood quickly blossomed and covered all of it, the new wound vomiting blood copiously. The kid reacted. His eyes got so big, they looked like they were going to pop out of his skull. Veins erupted in his neck and temple. His shriveled arms tensed, twitched, started flapping with the desperate short moves of a wounded bird staring at a predator's mouth. Finally, the kid opened his mouth and the sound like a sustained N erupted from his throat, but it was far from a scream. He jerked his limbs some more as he's trying to unfreeze himself, to uncoil his body to fight the pain. I looked into his open mouth, he was devoid of teeth. His tongue was a scarred lump pulsating between his gums. I turned away and started at the crosses on the walls. While the fat man held onto the kid's legs, blood dripping on the pad in an arrhythmic song of pain. Sonia finished wiping the bolt cutters with the same alcohol wipe she'd used to clear her hands and dropped them on top of the gym bag. Then she grabbed another wipe, ripped the packet open, and applied the rectangular piece of disinfecting cloth to the wound. The kid kept making that strange sound. <clears throat> Tears had pulled in his eyes and were rolling down his face, falling on the puddle of drool on the pillow. I thought about the other missing fingers, the scars, the flesh that looked like it had been scooped out. Sonia and Osvaldo were monsters, real monsters. 
I felt cold, the kind of cold you only feel when you're truly afraid. Sonia held a wipe against the wound for a few seconds and then grabbed the quick clot and placed it against the wound. She told Obalito to hold the sponge in place. I hope he stops bleeding with this, Sonia said. No quiero tener que quemarlo otra vez. Quemarlo. Burn him. Otra vez. Again. Burn him to cauterize the wound. Burn him after chopping up a piece of his flesh without anesthesia. Burn him. The kid kept jerking his body and moaning. His movement slowed down a bit, but the sound stayed the same. It was going into my ears and making me feel cold inside despite the heat. While Osvalito held the sponge in place, Sonia ripped a few pieces of medical tape and applied them to the kid's foot to hold the quick clot in place. Listen, that's in my heart, she said, patting the kid's leg. Ahorita te doy algo para el dolor. Then she looked at us. The horror in my face must have been obvious. We'll clean it good and put an antibiotic ointment on it in half an hour or so when we're sure you ain't bleeding no more. Then she turned to the wall and prayed. Dios te salve María, llena eres de gracias, el Señor es contigo. Bendita tú eres entre todas las mujeres y bendito es el fruto de tu vientre Jesús. Santa María, Madre de Dios, ruega por nosotros pecadores, ahora y en la hora de nuestra muerte. Amén. The sound of her words and the strangled noise coming from the kid's throat melded together in an unholy song. Sonia inhaled deeply and started again, louder this time. Dios te salve, María, llena eres de gracia, el Señor es contigo. As Sonia started her praying again, a new sound joined her. I thought it was the insects at first, a thousand tiny legs on wood or a thousand wings clashing against each other. When it got louder, I realized it was neither. The sound came from the crosses on the wall. They were rattling. Sonia kept repeating the same prayer, now a monotonous penance that was a mere whisper under the sound of the crosses, slapping and scratching against the walls. Dios te salve, María, llena eres de gracia, el Señor es contigo. There are two kinds of religious people in the world. The first are the truly devout. They make God a presence in their life at all times, and they try their best to live according to the laws of whichever religion they belong to. That was me for a while. A man pushed into the imaginary arms of a protective deity since childhood. Recently, however, I'd been sliding into the second category, the oh shit religious person. These folks only turn to their God of choice when things go south. Then they turn to their God with prayers and promises. The rotten crosses made me do just that. I closed my eyes and I asked the Virgin to get me safely out of that evil house, as far away as possible from Sonia and her fucking bolt cutters. The fact that Sonia was praying to the same virgin was not lost in me, but in my head, the two couldn't be the same. What compassionate virgin looks on and pours blessings on the head of someone who spends their life cutting a helpless kid into pieces? Sonia finished her prayers, and that moment she stopped talking, the crosses stopped clattering. The kids' lamentations became longer but lower in volume. Sonia returned to the bed. With the wound bandaged for the moment, she told Osvaldito to put the kids' legs down. I guess he'd been holding them up so they wouldn't bleed so much. While he did so, she walked to the small table next to the chair and opened a drawer right below where the fat man has placed, had placed the envelope with the money. A moment later, Sonia turned back to us with a white handkerchief in her hands. She lifted it to her forehead, closed her eyes, and prayed. When the prayer was over, she went to the wall and started walking around the room, holding the handkerchief across very close to the crosses, slightly brushing it against them. When she was done, she returned to her spot next to the bed and used the handkerchief to pick up the severed toe. She wrapped the white cloth around it, crossed herself with it, 
whispered something, kissed the tiny bundle, holding it against her lips for a few seconds and handed it to Wonka. I don't know what Vasquez has in mind, mijo, but this is some serious power you're taking to him. Whatever it is, if you're involved, take care of yourself. Wonka moved the hand with the toe and it up and down a few times. With this, we're not gonna have any problems, Sonia. Mil gracias por tu ayuda. I promise you I'll be careful. Sonia looked at him. I was ready to walk out. She said, you're welcome. Now get the fuck out of my house and let me take care of my little baby. We need to pray extra hard today. We can't have another infection. Oswaldito, show them out. Oswaldito left the side of the bed and we repeated our little ballet to let the big man lead the way. As we left the room, I looked at El Milagrito, the little miracle, one last time. Now I could read every missing piece, every upraised scar. How long had he been suffering at the hands of these people? How much money had they made chopping him up into pieces? The thing about humanity is that it's always worse than the worst you can imagine. We are base, vile creatures rotten in the muck we've created. And our eyes looking always at a poised sky we populated with ghosts to help us sleep at night, to allow us to come up with reasons to do the things we do. I immediately knew my silent inaction in that small dark room would haunt me. None of us are as brave as we think we are. Osvaldito opened the front door and stepped aside. Juanca stopped next to him and asked, hey, you're new. What happened to the other guy? The big man said nothing. Capuelo away, cat got your tongue? Osvaldito opened his mouth. Sitting inside it was a short pinkish lump near his throat. His tongue had been cut out. No mames, said Juanca with a chuckle. These huevones están todos locos, he added. Walking out, Osvaldito looked at me. His eyes made me think of a taxidermied mount. He moved his arm to the front of his body and used the short barrel of the Uzi to scratch his balls. I followed Wanka. I don't know what I was expecting when we walked outside, but I wasn't expecting the world to be there brightly lit and looking the same. I wasn't expecting the car to be in the same spot and for everything else to look like things that belonged in a world where kids get fucking mutilated in small dark rooms. And then it becomes a, like a romance. So it's all good. Thank you. Pleasure listening to all of you. <laughs> that was fantastic. Thank you so much. And, and, don't, and don't, don't sit there and talk about, oh, I can't believe I was the last one to read. Get over it. <laughs> that, was, that was phenomenal. I mean, I appreciate it. Uh, and so sorry about you. that lovely, that lovely wow. interruption in there. But you, uh, I mean, you took it ran with it. So, uh, goodness gracious! It's, well, um, it's, it's more of the good guys. So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it kind of took me back to my uh, to my gaming days, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but uh, but I just want to I want to take the opportunity to thank everybody uh, who attended, uh, but mainly everybody who read tonight. Uh, you all did a phenomenal job, and I really appreciate y'all taking the time out of this evening to come out and read for our audience. <laughs>